the topic that we have tonight, the Bible, its origin, inspiration, and authority. Um, before we get into the lesson, um, well, this is a deep dive, right? We're going to cover a lot of ground, right? But if we're using the analogy of diving, imagine trying to dive the Mariana Trench. That's what we're diving tonight, okay? There's a lot of stuff that we could cover, a lot of things that we could, um, uh, that we could say, and I want to encourage you to use the lesson tonight as a tool, something that can help you for further study on the subject. And so that's kind of how we want to approach tonight. Uh, there's going to be some things that we'll mention very briefly that we, we would talk about all night if we could. And so I want to encourage you to take the lesson and use it for your own personal study into this incredibly important set of doctrines as we're talking about God's Word, its trustworthiness, why we can be confident that we have the Bible, God's Word for us today. Um, so uh, with that, uh, we get into the lesson here. Uh, it, you'll notice uh, we're going to try every week to have notes that are similar in format. And so we have a list of key terms at the beginning of uh, lesson uh, two here. Uh, we're not going to go through each one right now. We're going to hit on them as we make our way through the lesson. Uh, so where we're going to start is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. These are in your notes. They're on page 2. And we're going to read uh, that passage of Scripture together. And then what I want to do is pray and ask God's blessing on this lesson. And I want to invite you to pray with me while I pray. As we thank God for His Word and ask Him to help us have understanding as we study together tonight. So the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word. Lord, I pray you'll bless as we work our way through this lesson. Uh, Lord, I pray you'll help give us understanding through your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there is someone here tonight who still needs to come to faith and be saved, Lord, I pray that tonight would be a night of salvation. And for those of us that believe, Lord, I pray that tonight would be a night of growth and strengthening as we think about your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. What an important subject we have in front of us tonight. Second Timothy, yeah, it, that is Second Timothy 3, 14 through 17. So what an important subject we have in front of us tonight. Look what, uh, there's a really great quote, a book, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. I want to read this quote for you. It really summarizes I think what we're uh, trying to get at tonight. As we think about the doctrine of Scripture, it is impossible to overstate the importance of what we are now considering. The existence, inspiration, authority, and trustworthiness of Scripture is the doctrinal foundation upon which every other doctrine stands. If there's no such thing as a God-breathed Scripture, if it does not reveal to me the truths that are essential for a knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and the way of salvation... And I have no right or authority to say what is true to myself or anyone else. If there is no inspired, authoritative, and trustworthy word of God, then I am left to myself to decide by my own experience, personal insight, or collective research with others what is true. The stakes are very high. Do we have a word from God in the Bible? And how can we know that? And what can we uh, grow in in our understanding to help give us confidence in that? Some things that we're going to answer tonight. How do we get the Bible? What does it mean that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? How can we be confident that we have God's Word today? And what does it mean that the Bible is the authoritative Word from God? So as we start, we're going to begin with Revelation. Revelation. God has made Himself known to humanity. So there is a God. And He is not an unknowable God or an impersonal God. He's knowable. He's personal. That means we can have a relationship with God. And why is that? Because God has made himself known to us. He has revealed himself to us. When we think about the revelation of God to humanity, it's, it's uh, uh, typically understood in two major categories, right? There's an idea of general revelation, 
And then there's what we would call special revelation. What is general revelation? God's general revelation to humanity is seen through creation and moral consciousness. So when we talk about general revelation, there is a way in which God makes himself known in the world and it can be seen in the things that are around us and in the way that we understand the world. So first, there's the idea of general revelation through creation. Two very important passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. When we look around in this natural world, when we think about the universe that we exist in, we can see the creative work of God. It testifies of his presence in the universe. It testifies of his power, right? There is a God and he has made himself known. And we see that through creation. The Bible says, day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night bringeth forth knowledge. The sun goes up, the sun goes down, the earth spins. And what does that tell us? That there is a God who created it and there is a God who is sustaining it. God has made himself known through creation. God, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Look what the Bible says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. God has made himself known through creation and he can be known or understood his existence through the creative work. And how does that passage end in Romans? It says, the things from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse. There is a God and the creation, what we see in the universe testifies of his presence and power. But then there's also general revelation through moral consciousness. Romans 2, 14 through 15. The Bible says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else accusing one another. The Bible tells us that our basic understanding of right and wrong, a moral sense of right and wrong comes from God. Right? There are those who would deny the existence of God and the importance of his truth in the world. And they would say, well, we can have a moral understanding of the world uh, without God. But the Bible says that any kind of concept that we have of a difference between good and evil comes from the creative work of God in us. Right? That moral consciousness, that basic understanding. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There are those who want to talk about uh, people's inherent rights or they want to talk about human rights. All of this comes from a, uh, a theistic worldview or an idea that there is a God and he has put these things into the universe as part of his design, right? So God has made himself known through creation and through moral consciousness. These are general revelation. And believers and unbelievers alike can see and understand these things working in the world. So if that's general revelation, what is special revelation? God has made himself known in a general way, but what about special revelation? God's special revelation to humanity is seen through supernatural acts, the person of Jesus Christ, and the written scriptures, right? So God has made himself known in a general way, and then God has made himself known in special ways. Throughout history, God has made himself known in miraculous ways, right? Supernatural acts, when you read in the Bible, things like God's audible voice in the garden to Adam and Eve. When you start reading about burning bushes that don't burn up and there's audible voice coming from that bush. Job saw God in a whirlwind. These are supernatural ways that God has made himself known to humanity. Then, in the Gospels, we have what we call the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ. God manifested in the flesh. And when we talk about God's special revelation to us, yes, these supernatural acts that we read about, but there is something powerful about the manifestation of God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now let's stop just there for just one second. Right? God at different times and in different ways. Right? Through burning bushes and through whirlwinds. Right? And the, and the testimony of the writer of Hebrews is that God made himself known in these incredible ways throughout history. And that's something. Right? But what does the rest of the verse say? Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So God's special revelation to humanity, all these miraculous ways that God has made himself known, and then you have God in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, literally the summit, right, of God's revelation to humanity. Sometimes I'll have conversations with people and they'll say, well, you know, if God talked to me through a burning bush, I'd probably believe in God too. But the testimony of Peter, who was a a close friend and follower of Jesus, was that I have a more sure word. Right, more sure than what, was, what, what, you, what we read about from the prophets and in the law. And the reason I have a more sure word is because I saw God in the flesh. I saw with my own eyes the person of Jesus Christ, the great revelation of God to us. Right? So when we talk about God's special revelation, there are supernatural acts. There's the person of Jesus. And at the bottom there of page 3, we have this statement, God's special revelation to humanity reaches a powerful climax in the person of Jesus Christ and the testimony of his life and death. The written revelation of God is all about the word made flesh and his redemptive work in the world. So in the Gospel of John, this is in your notes, in John chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse number 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus was the word made flesh. We read about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, the great story of the Bible, in the written word. And so what you have with God's special revelation to us, yes, supernatural acts, but you have Jesus Christ and you have the written word we call the scriptures. These two together form the great um, conclusion of God's revelation to us until he comes again and we see him in power and glory. Those of us who are still here on earth when, when Jesus comes again. So the revelation of God to us, the special revelation of God, the person of Jesus and the written word. Now, before we move on to that next section, sometimes you might hear people say they might try to I don't know, they want, to pit, they want to pit a fight between Jesus and the Bible, right? Who is the author and the finisher of our faith? Jesus. Where do we read about the life, death, teachings of Jesus? In the scriptures. I just want to encourage you with this, right? This is a bonus, right? If you hear somebody make it sound like there's some sort of competition between Jesus and the Bible, no, Jesus is the revelation of God to us, manifest God in the flesh, and we read all about that in the Bible, right? So both of them work together to bring about a knowledge of salvation in our life so that we can follow Jesus faithfully, right? So there's no competition between Jesus and the written word, right? Together, they represent the great revelation of God to humanity, right? So the special revelation of Jesus, that's the incarnation, but what about the written word, right? That we get through inspiration, right? We're on page number four, inspiration, We have been given a written word from God through the moving of the Holy Spirit on human beings. Where do the scriptures come from? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, these are the verses we read at the beginning, right? Paul is writing to Timothy. What did he say to Timothy? He said, from a child, you've known the what? The holy scriptures. Paul uses very specific language when writing to Timothy. And he says, there are these words, right? Not oral traditions, not things that you were told growing up by your mother and your grandmother, but things that you were taught by your mother and your grandmother from the scriptures, right? And he said, these holy scriptures, right? So these are written words and they're different written words. 
right? I'm not just talking to you about the books. If you read in uh, the latter part of 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy about bringing books. He says, get me the parchments, get me the books. He doesn't call them scripture. He makes a very big difference when talking about written words. He said, some are scripture, some are not, right? These words that I'm reminding you of, the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise, he said, those come to us through inspiration. We get these words different than we get other words. The phrase given by inspiration of God is translated from the Greek word theanustos and conveys the idea of literally being breathed out by God. The writings of scripture came from God. He is the originator and the author of scripture. So where did the Bible come from? It came from God. God, through His Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, supernaturally worked in and through human beings to produce a written word. And we call that written word Scripture. The written word, the Bible. It's God's word to us. What's the nature of inspiration? We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. God used human beings with all the unique aspects of their personalities and experiences to bring about a written word. The words that were written came from God and all genres of literature that we find in the Bible, history, poetry, are the inspired word of God. Before we read the text from Matthew, why is it important to understand the verbal, that's words, the words, the written words, plenary, that's all of the different kinds of words right? There are a couple of competing ideas about inspiration, right? One of them is called partial or conceptual, right? This is the idea that God, yeah, he maybe, he maybe did some work and in some moving in some people's lives, but he gave them some general ideas, some thoughts, and then they kind of ran with it, you know? There's also the idea of a natural inspiration, a natural theory of inspiration. What's natural inspiration? This takes God out of the equation, Right? Maybe you've heard someone say, I mean, I take the Bible seriously, but people wrote the Bible. Right? Uh, maybe there's some good things in the Bible. Right? Especially, I mean, you might have a friend that would say, you know, especially in those teachings of Jesus, when he talks about loving your neighbor, and he talks about being, you know, feeding the hungry, all those things are good. Right? There's good things, but ultimately they didn't come from God. Right? These are, they were inspired to write the writings of Scripture in the same way that Somebody might be inspired to write a song or somebody might be inspired to paint a painting, right? That's natural inspiration. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration. We believe God used human beings with all their unique personalities and experiences, right? Not a dictation, right? He did not, they didn't go to sleep and wake up and, whoa, look, there's words. No, they wrote the words as God breathed the words into them. And all of their experiences and all the unique things about their life, right? That's why when you read the Bible, there's so much interesting detail and history and personality comes through. And you can talk about the different literary forms and you can talk about uh, the different cultural and historical context, right? All that's there. Why? Because God used human beings. But they wrote words that he gave them by inspiration, right? The verbal Plenary inspiration of Scripture. They all came from God. Yeah, so when we talk about verbal, we're talking about the words. And then when we talk about plenary, we're talking about all of the different... There's no place in the Scripture, there's no part of the Scripture that is not the inspired words of God, right? There's no... um, Whether you're talking about history, whether you're talking about poetry, whether you're talking about songs... All of the writings of Scripture came from God, right? It's the full understanding of plenary. It's the complete written written word. That's exactly right. Let's read this passage from uh, Matthew. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. While Jesus is speaking within the context of fulfillment, it's very clear that there is an emphasis on the words. It's very clear that there's an emphasis on all that was written, right? 
All must be fulfilled. So the nature of inspiration, it's verbal, plenary. Every word, all different types of literature. The process of inspiration. So what did it look like? A very important passage when we're talking about inspiration. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The Bible says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard. When we, uh, when we heard with him in... Uh, <clears throat> When we were with him in the holy mount, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. There's a whole lot here, right? Peter says, I want to tell you something. The stories that we're communicating to you, they're not cunningly devised fables, right? In a time of Greek and Roman mysticism and mythology, right? There would have been the expectation of some to receive these. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, that sounds great, like a story, right? But so many of the um, myths and the legends that, are, that the Greeks and the Romans would recite and talk about, they didn't, they didn't believe them in the same way that Peter was inviting people to believe, right? But he says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. We've made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, let me explain something to you. What we're telling you about, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it ourselves, right? It's different. And then Peter makes a connection between his experience as an eyewitness of Jesus Christ and what he is communicating, his experience, and he makes a connection between the prophecies of old time. And he starts talking about Scripture, right? That same word that Paul used when writing to Timothy. And he makes it very clear, right? This is at the top of page five. Peter makes a connection between his eyewitness account, which is recorded in the Gospels, the prophecies of old time, and the written words of Scripture. And he explains that these words from God are not the product of the will of man, but rather the product of the Holy Spirit working in and through human beings. Right? Look what the Bible says in Acts 1, verses 16 through 17. Men and brethren, this is Peter. Men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. So the context there is Peter talking about the betrayal of Judas. But what's fascinating about that moment is Peter says, this is something that David said, but, but we know that David, it was the Holy Spirit that was speaking. He just used David, Amen. right? So he spoke by the mouth of David, right? This is inspiration in action. Right? We, we can read the Psalms and we can see the, the, uh, the unique characteristics of David's writing. We can see his experiences and his life coming through. But when David spoke Scripture, that was from the Holy Spirit. God was working in and through him. That's the idea of inspiration. So we have a written revelation from God by way of inspiration. The Holy Spirit working in and through human beings like you and me to produce written words. And it's very clear that there are certain written words that are Scripture, God's words. So then we have these written words, right? And you say, when we got these, when these words were written down, that's a long time ago, right? Um, I've been doing a lot of printing over the last couple of days, as you guys can see. They didn't have any of that, right? So when these were written, if they were going to endure, Right? They were going to have to be copied one at a time by hand. They were going to have to be preserved. They were going to have to be cared for. They were going to have to take this process seriously. When we talk about preservation, right, which here is the top of uh, page 5, God has faithfully and providentially overseen the preservation of his written word. God did not give us a written revelation of himself, 
only to allow that written revelation to be corrupted and ultimately lost over time as a result of human evil and human error during the processes of transmission, that's copying, and translation, one language to another. Now, real quickly, human evil, when we say human evil, intentional omissions, changes, and additions. Human error, unintentional omissions, changes, and additions. Now, let me just stop here and say this. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where they said, well, yeah, I mean, that's great that you read the Bible, but, you know, that's been changed, and things have been added, and things have been taken out. I mean, you can't really know for sure. I mean, even if you want to say that God worked in some sort of supernatural way in and through the human authors to produce certain written words, I mean, this was during a time where they couldn't photocopy it, they couldn't electronically store it, they couldn't mass produce it. There's no way that what we're reading today is God's work. It got changed, right? Human evil. There were people who wanted to leverage it for themselves, and so they're like, I don't like that, I think I'll take it out. You ever had that experience when reading the Bible? Right? If it were up to you, there might be some spots where you're like, I'd prefer it didn't say that or that quite that way. Right? And so if you're willing to do it, I mean, way back then, there's nobody there to stop them, right? Or just human error, right? You're doing it one at a time by hand. I mean, listen, I, I produced I read all these notes, all these books are supposed to have week one and week two. And someone said, I got a book and it only has week one. Human error, right? Over and over and over again, right? Things get left out, things get changed. I mean, if you were a scribe and you got halfway done and you're like, oh, I missed a chapter. Well, I guess it wasn't as important, right? So the idea of these, the idea of this enduring, right? But what we see from the testimony of Scripture is that God gave a written word and he invited his people, as he invites us to do still today, to be part of his work of preserving his word. Look what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Moses, I've got something I want you to take down. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers and hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and out of thy gates. The prophet Moses, God's man, is given a word. The people are encouraged. Teach it, write it, preserve it. Deuteronomy 17, 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, so if there's a king, if there's someone in power, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. Do you see a pattern of God establishing of a mechanism for which his written words would be preserved, hide them, share them, write them. And I want everybody to be part of this process. What was the result? When we read the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples are pretty confident that what they're quoting and what they're reading came from God. Why were they so confident? Because God's people had been part of God's plan to preserve God's word. They took it seriously. And what was the result? Uh, Jesus had words that he could uh, quote. He went into the temple, went into the synagogue, read from the word, taught the word. Hundreds and hundreds of references to the Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the Epistles. Right? And then... With the New Testament, the life of Jesus, and the explosion of Christianity, what you had 
was an overwhelming number of the gospel records, the epistles, the letters of Paul, letters of Peter. So that what are we left with? An overwhelming number of manuscripts. Now, before I read this next part, let me share something with you kind of personal. Not too personal, no medical history or anything. Some of you are looking nervous. <laughs> Some of the most godly, faithful, spirit-filled Christian people that I've ever known don't have any idea about no manuscripts. God's word changed them and it worked in their heart in such an undeniable way. And we'll talk about the personal testimony of scripture and they could tell you that's God's word because of what it did for me. The self-attesting nature of the scriptures is what that's sometimes referred to as. And listen, that might not necessarily be an apologetic. In other words, your skeptical family member or friend might not be able to quite fully get that. But there is nothing illegitimate about the testimony of the power of the word of God in your life. Amen. Right? When you look at the historical record, when you look at the evidence that is available to us, that can give us additional confidence that what we have today is the word of God. That's just the cherry on top, friends. That's just the bonus, right? It's wonderful to know. It's important to study. I'd encourage you to further research. But long before some of these things were more fully known or fully fleshed out, there have been followers of Jesus who have taken his word and spread it to the furthest reaches of the world and seen God work in miraculous ways because that in front of you, that's God's word. The powerful, living word of God. But when you look at the historical record, the testimony of God's faithfulness and providence to preserve his word is clearly seen. Let me read this uh, paragraph to you. We do not have the original documents or autographs of the writings of scripture what we do have is an overwhelming amount of ancient manuscript copies. This collection of ancient manuscripts provides strong evidence for the accuracy and reliability of the Bible. Determining what the original writings of Scripture said is accomplished through a practice known as textual criticism. Let me read you this quote. The cradle, the cross, and the crown. An introduction to the New Testament. Although textual criticism is a complex and at times controversial science, it has provided students of Scripture with at least two assured results. First, none of the variant readings, including omissions, affect the central message or theological content of the scriptures. Second, it can confidently be asserted that the text of the Bible today is an accurate and faithful representation of the autographs. What's the, what's the whole point? Some people might say to you, you know, well, I read that you know, certain texts of the same stuff say different things. And you might think to yourself, no way, that's not true. That is true. There are instances. Tens of thousands of manuscripts Writings of the Old Testament, writings of the New Testament. You say, are they all, they all say different things. I mean, I remember watching one time this movie called The Da Vinci Code. And in The Da Vinci Code, I found out that Emperor Constantine, bad dude, right? And this whole idea that Jesus was the son of God, that was Constantine's idea, right? And he, he put it into the manuscripts. And then we found a manuscript dated almost two centuries before Constantine was born from the Gospel of John that clearly makes a claim to Jesus' divinity. Whoops. Now, full disclosure, Don Brown never claims that his books are history. But there's no doubt that the influence of something like the Da Vinci Code on culture, then you follow that up with liberal scholars who say, well, like, listen, I mean, yeah, we can be, you can be religious, you can enjoy the Bible, but I mean, we really just can't be confident that we know what it says. And let me just say something to you. We don't have the time to dig into all of this. This is a discipline that people give their lives to. But something that I am willing to very confidently say is we do know what the Bible says. There isn't a question about what the Bible says. We can be confident. We have a historical, a body of evidence in the historical record that is overwhelming. When you talk about the writings of antiquity, that's writings that are really, 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 really old. Right? There are books like Homer's Iliad. How many of you have that on your nightstand at home? Right? <laughs> Homer's Iliad. Right? Or the works of Plato, Socrates, anybody? These are writings that, that are, are, are accepted in academia. They're not scrutinized. 
We have manuscripts, in some cases less than 1,000, sometimes close to 100, sometimes in the single digits. The New Testament, tens of thousands of manuscripts. We know what the Bible said. And we can be confident that when we open up our Bibles and read it, we are reading the Word of God. I, I invite you to further study. It's a fascinating subject. But when we talk about God's providence in preserving His Word, we see it in the Old Testament through the care that God's people took into transcribing, transmitting the Word. We can be confident that what we have today, the historical record, the evidence in the historical record bears it out. Then there's translation. The writings of the Bible were originally written in three ancient languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Since their original writing, the works of Scripture have been translated into hundreds of languages. While most relevant to us is the story of the English Bible, it's important to understand that the writings of Scripture were translated into many languages before they were translated into English. The story of how the writings of the Bible have been translated into different languages is a story that reminds us of the faithfulness of God in protecting and preserving His Word throughout history. The English translation that we use here at FBC is the King James Version of the Bible. The KJV is a faithful translation that utilizes a translation technique referred to as literal equivalence, which is a word-for-word approach to translation. What's amazing about the story of the translation of the Bible is that I know what, what matters to us or what's more relevant to us is English. Dozens and dozens of languages of the Old Testament and then some of the New Testament in different languages prior to being translated in English the story of the Bible being translated and how God's word has made it to different places, to different people, and they could hear it. And listen, what, what the testimony that we can read the Bible tonight in a language that all of us understand is a testimony to the faithfulness of God in preserving his word. This is God's word, inspired and preserved for you and for me. The story of the English Bible alone, fascinating history. I can give you some recommendations for resources that you can learn more about the history. Amazing people who accomplished amazing things. It's a remarkable story. But I'm so thankful for God's providence and his faithfulness. He has preserved his word. Transmission. They were written and those original writings were copied. Ultimately, they were translated in different languages. I can open the Bible and read it today in English and I can be sure I have God's word because he has preserved his word for us. So there's preservation. But what about the canon of Scripture? Certain writings have been recognized and received as God's word throughout history. Let's talk about what we mean with the word canon. And this may or may not be on your quiz. The term canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which originally meant a reed or a rod. Since the rod was frequently used as a measuring stick, the word came to convey the idea of a standard or a rule. The canon of Scripture refers to the collection of 66 individual writings or books that make up the whole of what we call the Bible. These are the writings that meet the standard and that can be rightly distinguished as Scripture. Let's talk a little bit about the composition of our, composition of our Bibles, what's most familiar to us. How much time do we have? 30 seconds. Okay. These words were written over a period of approximately 1,500 years by approximately 40 different human authors They have historically been divided into two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament contains 39 books, beginning with the book of Genesis and ending with the prophecy of Malachi. The New Testament begins with the book of Matthew and ends with the book of the Revelation. This collection of writings represents the complete written revelation of God to humanity. So the question that so often comes up, why these ones? Right? What about some of the other ones? Right? How can we know that the collection that we have is the right one? A very common and very important question is why these particular books. A misconception and misrepresentation about the Bible is that the collection of books were arbitrarily chosen by self-proclaimed church leaders at councils in the 3rd and 4th centuries, while the use of the particular words canon and canonical to describe certain writings of the Bible is not something we see In the historical record until the 4th century, the concept of canon is seen long before that time. So you might hear something like this. Well, yeah, the books that we have in the Bible, some guys who decided that they were in charge back in the 3rd and 4th century, they said, yeah, that one, not that one. 
maybe this one. I don't think about that one, right? And that is how the collection and the composition took place. While the use of these words among Christian people, canon to describe the collection or canonical to describe a particular writing, you don't see that in the historical record until that time. But what you do see is a very clear concept of certain writings. How do we know that? Well, let's think about the verse that we started off with, the book from 2 Timothy, right? Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, right? Early first century, late second century, right? For early first century, right? And he says, you've known the what? The Holy Scriptures, All right? It doesn't sound like there was some sort of mystery to Paul as to what words constituted God's words, right? No, what we see is this concept consistently throughout the uh, record in Scripture. Let's read a couple of passages here. Canon in the Old Testament. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. So it sounds like, it sounds like Joshua had some written words that he regarded as a word from God. What about in the Gospels? What a really important passage here in the Gospels. Luke 24, and you have verses 27 and 44, right? Verse 27 says, And beginning, this is Jesus, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then verse number 44, after he said a couple of things, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. You want to know why that's such an important passage? Is because Jesus identifies the entire Jewish Bible. He's teaching his disciples. So the, the writer of the gospel, the, the, the apostles who were, they were eyewitnesses. They had eyewitness testimony, right? They're writing and he's saying, Jesus told us that all of the, the teachings about himself that where the revelation about himself can be found, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's very comprehensive and also very specific. Paul is, Jesus didn't, the, the record of the gospel record of Jesus wasn't, you can, find, you can find God in all sorts of inspiring things. You can read about me in all sorts of inspiring things. No, he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is the concept of canon. Here's an awesome one. This is in uh, Acts. Acts 4, verses 23 through 30. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold thy, their threatenings, and grant unto thy servant that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by thy holy child Jesus. So the apostles' testimony... After they had been arrested and threatened, they said, well, all this, this is just, remember how, they said, remember guys, God spoke by David and Psalm 2, and he talked all about what happened to Jesus and what's happening to us right now. And it's very clear that the believers in the first century regarded the words that David had written as not just some written words, but as God's words, right? Something with Authority. What about in the epistles? 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved um, brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own 
destruction. So Peter's testimony of the writings of Paul is that those are Scripture. He said, you know, Paul writes some kind of difficult stuff. And he said, and sometimes people struggle with that like they do with other Scriptures. Well, that's just nonchalant of Peter, isn't it? You know, like they do with other Scriptures. That's a serious statement that Peter makes, right? But it's obvious that Peter can make that statement because there is some confidence, right? This is clearly the working of God among people in that time. Peter was more than willing to say, the letters that Paul's written to you, the epistles that he's written, Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul writing again to Timothy, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. In this verse, Paul makes mention of Scripture. He gives a quote that we can find in Deuteronomy, and he gives a quote that many believe you can identify in the Gospel of Luke. And so when he says, these are Scripture, Deuteronomy, which a lot of the Jewish Christians would have been like, A-okay, yeah. And the Gospel of Luke, that's also Scripture. Right? So now we get to... um, canon in the early church, right? But I want you to, I want to read this statement here underneath that verse. It's important. He says, ultimately, ultimately, the first century believers were not tasked with creating the canon, but simply recognizing the writings of scripture as words from God, right? So rather than starting uh, with the early church and working our way back, we go to the Old Testament, we work our way all the way up to the epistles. And then, yeah, you look at the historical record and you see some instances, the use of the word canon, a distinguishing of certain books. There was a, Christ, a, a Jesus follower named Athanasius. He used the term canon, right? Which, and he used it in a, um, a, a writing called the Decrees of the Council of Nicaea, which was produced shortly after 8350. And then 17 years later, in what is called the Paschal Letter, Athanasius would make a comprehensive look, list of the books of the Bible, and he distinguishes in that letter as the divinely inspired scripture. So here's the thing. When somebody tells you, well, it was the third and fourth century, you know, people decided. It's like, no, we got to go a little further back and work our way up, right? By the time it gets to the third and fourth century, what you have are people recognizing writings that have been regarded as inspired words from God, distinct and different. Now, before we finish this point, it's important to understand we don't want to give the impression, and, and I will encourage you with this. Sometimes the temptation is to take what history tells us and sort of smooth it out a little bit. Have you ever had that temptation? I want the story to be a little neater, and so I'm going to just ignore this part that doesn't work. And listen, an honest look at the historical record gives us great confidence in the Bible. An honest look at the historical record gives us great confidence in the Scriptures. That's not to say that it's all neat and clean. We certainly would like for it to be, but it's not. And I'd encourage you, if you're interested in that subject, it's a fascinating thing to read about some of the disagreements that Christians had. What about this writing? And what about this writing? But ultimately, what you see by the end of the fourth century is an overwhelming consensus among Christian people. These are the books of the Bible. These are the writings of Scripture. This is God's Word. Like again, not to say that it's neat and clean, but I'm incredibly grateful for how God has worked in and through the canon, the collection, the 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, how he has used his word throughout history in incredible and miraculous ways. And you can be confident when you open up the Bible, when you hold this Bible up, you've got God's word. All of it, it's God's word. So as we finish this up, this last section here, the characteristics of Scripture. So there's a presupposition we have to make before we talk about the characteristics of Scripture. And that's what we've established. These are written words from God, preserved for us. They came about through supernatural processes, through the process of inspiration, and now we have God's Word. So what are some of the unique characteristics of God's Word? The Bible is the inspired Word of God, and possesses certain distinct characteristics that set it apart from other books. The clarity of Scripture. The Bible is a written revelation of God to humanity. It contains the truth about who He is and the means of salvation. The Bible can be understood by ordinary people using ordinary means. To say that the Scriptures are clear is not the same thing as saying they are always easy to understand, 
The clarity of Scripture speaks to the nature of God as a personal God. Just as God is knowable, His Word is knowable. The Bible is not a secret code or riddle. Through reading, meditation, and study, we can understand the Bible. So when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, this is all, listen, you don't need somebody in charge to tell you what the Bible says, right? There was a time where you had to go and you had to get some permissions. You have to ask yourself the question, why is the Bible under lock and key, right? Why would the people in charge not want you and me to read the Scriptures, right? Because the Scriptures... God's Word, it's a revelation to humanity, and we can understand it, right, using our, um, using our faculties, using our abilities and understandings. Now, like we said, the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean it's always easy, right? There's a process of interpretation. There's work that is done on that end, but we can know the Word of God. I love the way the psalmist describes it. Here at the top of page 9, Psalm 119, 97 through 105. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I, uh, I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. God's word can give us understanding. It can make things clear and it shines a light. The word of God is like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. One aspect of the clarity of scripture is the indwelling Holy Spirit and his work of teaching us to help us understand the spiritual things. So Jesus promised his disciples, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a comforter. And when the comforter has come, he's going to teach you He's going to bring uh, to mind uh, understanding the things that I've taught you. Uh, Paul writes about this dynamic, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. For he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. When you go to read your Bible, you can pray and invite the Holy Spirit of God to give you understanding. And each and every one of us that have believed on Jesus are indwelt by the Spirit, and he is a companion for us as we study and understand the word. We can utilize other means and methods we can glean from other brothers and sisters in Christ who have also studied the Word and have heard from the Holy Spirit in the Word, but I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Someone who is an unbeliever can understand the Bible in an intellectual sense, but as is very clear by Paul, they cannot understand it in a spiritual sense, right? There are things that just don't make sense. And one of the things we have to do is pray that those who we love, family members and friends that do not believe, is that they would understand the gospel and believe and be saved and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then be able to understand spiritual things. Amen. There's the clarity of Scripture. What about the sufficiency of Scripture? God's Word is enough. The Bible contains everything we need to have a relationship with God, knowledge of salvation, and to live a life of faithfulness and obedience. Right. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The Bible is sufficient. God's word is enough. What we need to know God, to experience salvation, and to live a life of faithfulness to him, can be found 
in his word. The word is sufficient. We talk about the idea of a closed canon. That is, we have 66 books, no more, no less, and there is no new written revelation from God. When we read Paul's writing, he says there's this foundation, prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We go back to the idea that the the great summit of God's revelation to humanity, the person of Jesus Christ, testified in the written word, and we have that written word from God. And what we have is enough. God's word is sufficient. What about the inerrancy of Scripture? The Bible is absolutely true and without error. It is the pure and perfect word of God. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of fire. Psalm 119, 140, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Everything that the Bible says is true. The Bible is an absolute standard of truth. It's true. You can be confident. You can trust it because God's word is true, pure, holy. I love what Jesus asks of his followers. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The reliability of scripture. God's word is sure. We can put our confidence in the Bible. The reliability of scripture is seen in the prophetic witness and personal testimony. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You can have confidence in the scriptures. God's word are, is sure. There's a reliability. There are many things we could say about the reliability of scripture, but let's talk about the prophetic witness. And we could talk a lot about prophecy, but let's talk about messianic prophecy. And those are prophecies about Jesus. Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old to ever whose going forth have been from old from everlasting. Isaiah 11:1, 1, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Two prophecies, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. He'll be born in Bethlehem, he will be of the uh, of divinic lineage. Both of these prophecies about Jesus are fulfilled in the Gospels. Luke 2, 4, And Joseph also went down from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. How many of you, that's familiar from Christmas reading, right? But when you read that verse, those are two hundred-year-old, hundreds-of-year-old prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled. When we talk about the messianic prophecies, these are just a small handful. There's a really interesting quote from the Jewish historian Josephus. And I know some of you are big Josephus buffs, and you've got all of his books up on your mantle, right? But Josephus was a, a prominent historian, and he wrote something fascinating about Jesus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. That is a remarkable testimony from the historical record from the historian Josephus who says these are just a few things. I mean, did you catch that? 10,000 other wonderful things? He said there is so much about this guy that is unbelievable. That's a secular historian Josephus. There's the reliability of scripture through the prophetic witness and then what about personal testimony? We touched on this briefly, but 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Bible is the word of God. It's reliable. 
not just through the prophetic witness, but through personal testimony. We could go around the room and I could ask you, has God's word proven true for you? And you'd be able to testify, yes, it's proven true for me. Paul said, I'm so thankful that when I went to Thessalonica, they received it not as a word from me because a word from me isn't what they needed. They needed a word from God and they got a word from God and it transformed the place and all sorts of remarkable things happened. And you uh, that are here tonight who have believed in Jesus and have experienced salvation, you have a personal testimony of the reliability of scripture. God's word is proven trustworthy for you because of how it has changed your life. What about the unity of Scripture? This is awesome. Despite being written over 1,500 years by approximately 40 different people, the Bible has a remarkable unity. The main character is Jesus, and the main narrative is God's plan to save us from sin. A couple years ago, I came across this little doctrinal book, Plain Theology for Plain People. I thought, That's, I think I could handle that. A Plain Theology for Plain People by a man named Charles Octavius Booth. I love how he summarizes the unity of Scripture. Between the writings of the first and last books of the Bible, more than 1,500 years elapsed, and it engaged the pens of shepherds, farmers, doctors, lawyers, priests, prophets, apostles, poor men, rich men, unlearned men, learned men, great men. Sometimes it is precept, sometimes it's history, sometimes it is biography, sometimes it is song, sometimes it's supplication, and sometimes it's prophecy. From Genesis to Revelation, the holiness is the moral seal, while everywhere grace, mercy, and hope shine in the face of of the one Messiah. Now that is a beautiful testimony of the unity of Scripture. Listen, 66 books, 1,500 years, 40 different people, all sorts of different cultural contexts, and yet there is one main character. His name is Jesus. There is one big story, and that is how God redeems humanity unto himself through the work of Christ on the cross. There's a couple of passages. I want to go down to the one in Acts, right? There's the passage in Genesis 3.15. That's what's sometimes called the first gospel. That's where God says, oh, okay, we're going to read it. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Jesus is talking to the serpent, the devil. And he says, you're going to get a shot in on the Messiah, right? You're going to bruise his heel but he's going to crush your head, right? All the way at the beginning in Genesis, we have this beautiful uh, narrative playing out in front of us, right? It's the struggle of good and evil. And guess what? Jesus wins, right? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God uh, gave unto him to show his servants things that must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signify it by his angel unto his servant, John. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's Jesus. I want you to read that Acts 26 through 38. Read that story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip and how awesome that is, a testimony of the unity of Scripture. But let's do this last one so that we have some uh, per, um, a small group time. The authority of Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the final word and complete authority upon which all beliefs and values are based all traditions, creeds, counsels, and opinions are to be tested against the final standard. That's the word of God. Acts 17, 10 through 12. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. So, if this is the inspired and preserved word of God, if it's a written revelation from him, that means it comes with divine authority. The word of God has weight to it because it comes from God. And so it's the final word. Traditions, opinions, preferences, creeds, the final word is God's word. When Paul and Silas went to this place called Berea and they preached the gospel there, the Bible says that those that heard it said, if it's just all right with you, we're going to check and make sure that what you're saying is consistent with the scriptures. I remember hearing a sermon one time, don't be a Berean, right? When the, when the preacher came and spoke, they should have listened. Can I encourage you with something? Be a Berean. Don't not be a Berean. Listen, we're not, when the Bible says they received with readiness of mind, it doesn't say they were ready for a fight, Right? I'm not encouraging you to be ready for a fight, right? When, 
It's not about being contrary for contrary's sake. It's about, I regard God's word as the final authority. And so I want to be sure that this is what God's word says, right? And so when you receive the word, when you hear the word, when you hear it taught, when you hear it read, it's the God's word is the final authority. Everything else is secondary. God's word is the final authority. Everything else comes under the uh, authority and everything must submit to the authority of God's word. All believers should follow this example. Submit to the ultimate authority. It's God's word. We have an inspired, preserved, sufficient, inerrant, clear, powerful, living word from God. And what a wonderful, wonderful joy, privilege, and gift that is. We have the word of God.